This is a story about Tallahassee, Florida in 1966. While today Tallahassee has a population of nearly 200,000, in 1966 the population was under 50,000. It was a much different city then. The city had little violent crime and residents felt safe. That old cliche about never locking your doors applied in many neighborhoods in Tallahassee back then. On October 22nd of that year, a crime would take place that would change the way people in Tallahassee lived. It would make them cancel trick-or-treat, and many would buy weapons and stronger door locks. People would look closer at their neighbors and not know who to trust, because on this night, just after Florida State beat Mississippi State in football, a young girl came home to find her parents and little sister bound, shot, and stabbed. Hello, fellow sleuths. Welcome to a Southern Sleuth podcast. I'm Kathy Briggs. And I'm Michael Briggs. The story we have for you today involves a crime that happened over five decades ago. Michael, our parents grew up in the 60s. I always hear about it as a time of hippies and good music and when hitchhiking was a regular form of travel. It seems like it was a safer time and a time when people knew their neighbors and trusted them. Kids played throughout the neighborhoods with little supervision and sometimes even all over town. Yep, that was what I've heard. I think you were kind of raised that way because your mom was from the 60s and she was a little bit more of a hippie type than my mom. So you kind of had a freer childhood than I did. Yep, mine was definitely free. But it wasn't all peace and love during that time. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about the shocking murders of the Sims family. On the night of the murders, teenagers Jenny Sims and her sister Judy were babysitting at different houses for spending money, as they often did. Jenny arrived home about 11.15, but nothing would ever be the same after she opened the door. She didn't find her parents waiting up for her as they normally would. The TV and the radio were on, and like they had just been sitting there, but the house was quiet otherwise. In her parents' bedroom, she found them, bound and shot, Near her parents was the body of her 12-year-old little sister, Joy. She had been shot and stabbed. There was no 911 system then. In her panic, Jenny pulled out the phone book and called the local funeral home because she knew they had an ambulance. Rocky Bevis and his father arrived from their family-owned funeral home. The father cut the bonds from the family and found the parents were still alive. He did what he could for them until EMS was on the scene. And then the police started arriving. Deputy Sheriff Larry Campbell was one of the first officers to arrive. 
He was followed by a slew of other deputies and local police, and all of these people would trample through the crime scene. Mr. Sims would end up dying before he could even be loaded onto the ambulance, but the mother would be transported to the hospital. It's hard to imagine a time before 911, huh? Yeah, now we just pick up the phone and they know exactly where we're at. But I guess at that time, it was kind of well known that if you needed an ambulance, the people at the funeral home could get there quicker. Wow. Mm, Messing up the crime scene. It's tough to imagine. Yeah, because I think also neighbors were in and out. It wasn't just the funeral home people and all these different law enforcement neighbors were allowed in. And I'm sure... Uh, both of the older girls were allowed in. Right. I'm sure they didn't mean to contaminate it, but just trying to come in and help. Never experienced anything like that, I'm sure. Right. And I think there was a little bit of a jurisdiction thing, like who's going to handle it, the sheriff's office or Tallahassee police. But in the end, the sheriff's office pretty much took over and they canvassed the neighborhood and neighbors were interviewed and questioned about what they'd heard and where they were. One neighbor did say they heard a scream about 1045, but they thought it was just a child playing. Of course, the neighbor couldn't imagine the horror that was going on right that minute in the Sims house. No one can imagine why anyone would harm this family. I mean, they seem like any normal family. Nothing in the house seemed to be missing, so it seems like whoever went in there went in there to murder them. They were hoping that Helen Sims would awaken in the hospital and give them some information. But that hope was dashed when Helen succumbed to her injuries nine days after the attack. Mm. One of the first people looked at by law enforcement was the pastor of the family's church. They were active members in their church. His name was C.A. Roberts. Now, Helen, the mom, had worked for that church as the church secretary, and she had quit just prior to her murder. Many people in the area thought that maybe she knew too much about the pastor's numerous adulterous affairs or that maybe she was having an affair with him herself. But I didn't find even a sliver of evidence suggesting they had had an affair, and I want to discard that motive right away because I don't want anything like marring her memory because I do not believe she did anything like that. Right. But she may have had knowledge about activities the pastor wouldn't have wanted known. But the pastor himself has an airtight alibi for the evening because he was on the sidelines at that FSU game and was on film throughout the night. I see. So, when you say she worked for the church, what what was her job? She was a secretary. Oh, a secretary. And he had been known to have some questionable... Yeah, apparently he had a lot of female admirers. And he had a lot of affairs, apparently. Ooh. That's not good. But doesn't make a murderer. No, it doesn't. And there's no way, from what everybody said... As often as he was on film at that game, there's no way he would have could, have could have gotten to their house. Right. Now, some have said, well, maybe it was someone who he 
had asked to go do it or somebody that was just trying to protect him. But I really don't think any of that came out. I mean, it was a pretty violent murder. Yeah, like who would do that, that kind of level of crime? Just, I mean, that was pretty insane just to cover up. I don't know. It seems insane to me that. Yeah, it seems like a, a little, little, little far, you know. Yeah. Um, there is a couple from the area that a lot of people suspect, and they are Mary Charles LaJoy and Vernon Fox Jr. Mary Charles, who goes by Charlie, was a neighbor of the Sims, and Vernon Jr. was also. He lived very close. And these two have been friends since elementary school, and they became a couple in their teenage years. Now, Charlie was odd um, by all accounts that I have pulled up. She was known to be obsessed with death. The Rocky Bevis of the Bevis Funeral Home that we spoke of earlier said that she visited the funeral home so often asking questions that his dad ended up asking her to leave and not come back. Wow. And also there were reports that she broke into funeral homes and she wanted to steal things off of the dead bodies and wear the funeral shrouds. Oh, my. Yeah. Reportedly, her parents were abusive. They didn't have a very good relationship. And she considered Vernon her only friend. Oh, so they they were a couple. Right. Yeah. Okay. And... And Vernon had a better home life. Now, his dad was a professor at FSU. And get this, he was a professor of criminology and was very respected in his field. Oh, that's a little ironic. I guess that's the word. Now, I haven't seen any actual police reports about this, but it was... um, It's rumored that Vernon was known to prowl the neighborhood peeping at girls now i don't have any actual police reports but that's just things that i've read online several people talking about it he was supposedly caught peeping on 12 year old joy sims not long before the crime and also there's rumors that he was going to be charged with some kind of crime in relation to her now vernon has said that what he gave the original story he gave was that he and charlie had gone to the drive-in They left before the movie was over. They went parking at Dog Lake, and then Charlie dropped him off back in the neighborhood. His parents really didn't like him seeing her, so she couldn't drop him off at home, so she dropped him off down the road, and then he was walking home. And he claims that a car with three men stopped near him that night and then kept going. So I'm not really sure how heavily they were investigated. Some people say that they weren't really investigated properly due to Vernon's dad being so involved at FSU and having a lot of connections. But I did read something about Charlie's car being bugged by law enforcement and that the two of them were heard laughing about a nearby pond being drained by law enforcement while they were looking for the murder weapons. Wow. Now, Vernon's story has changed numerous times over the years. His first story was, you know, they saw the movie, left early. Then he said that by leaving the movie early, he meant that they left during the credits. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't call that leaving a movie early if I left while the credits were rolling. Um, 
He said at one point that they went to Dog Lake Parking afterwards. He said that they didn't go there. He said that um, that the car stopped and then drove off. Then he later said the car stopped, opened the door, shut it, and drove off. And then the most recent version that I read from him was that they opened the door. One of the men said, wrong one, not him, closed the door and drove off. But in 1966, police really had nothing to connect him or Charlie to the crime, so they couldn't make an arrest. Well, they sure must have been interested. They were bugging their car. Yeah. Other people that were looked into, one of those, other people were looked into, and one of those was a neighbor named Tommy Fulgham. But I don't think they really looked into him until he committed a murder in 1978, a really gruesome murder of his girlfriend. And then they discovered that he had been a neighbor of the Sims at the time of their murders. So when the police are going back and looking at things, they realize that when they went to interview his family, that Tommy wasn't at home. So that made them even more suspicious. But they do have prints from the crime scene, and his prints didn't match any of them. And he had been at a party, and several people had seen him at this party. Yeah, I just don't know if prints, not having prints is a big disqualifier. I think trying to hide from the police... Well, I don't necessarily know that he was trying to hide. I know he wasn't there that night because apparently he was at this party. Now, I know there have been rumors that he wasn't real quick to talk to the police. But he was 16 and maybe he just Uh didn't think he had anything to add. I don't know. Right. Then there's this guy named Robert Howell who came to the attention of the police in the 80s because a letter his wife had written was discovered. And in this letter, she said that Robert confessed to the killings in gruesome detail to her. Now, his friends didn't match either. And they couldn't find anything to connect him. So the police think that he actually made this story up to control his wife. He was he was not a very good husband. And I, they say that he probably made it up as a way to control her. You know, look what I did and don't right. cross me or... You'll end up like them. Yep. Sounds reasonable. It sounds reasonable. Really? <laughs> you would do that to me? <laughs> like, don't mess up, Kathy. I've learned <clears throat> a lot from these podcasts. Yeah. So, like, education. So, after Tommy Fulgham and Robert Howell were investigated, the case kind of stagnated. And then, in 1987... Charlie LaJoy, remember her? The yes. odd girl. Yes. Called the Leon County Sheriff's Office and asked to speak to Larry Campbell. Now, Charlie tells Mr. Campbell that her and Vernon Fox Jr. had gotten married, but they had recently divorced, and she wanted to meet with investigators. So they set it up there. You know, I'm sure they were excited. What's she going to tell us? Well, you know. So she comes in and she starts telling them that she's kind of had this like psychic vision or dream about the murders. And she's wondering if she was involved. Huh? Psychic dream? Yeah. She she claimed that she saw all this stuff and she's she's pretty mm. much asking them as many questions as they're asking her. Like 
what if I did it? Right. This is how I would do it. Absolutely. Very similar to, you know, if I did it. So what really gets to me when you're listening to this woman talk is the way she speaks about this family. Now, whether she had anything to do with it or not, this is a family. Three of them are murdered, and the other two are survivors of a murdered family member. And when she's speaking about how Vernon was possibly interested in these daughters, it's just very cringeworthy to me, the way she speaks. Right. Okay, this is where she was kind of having some unbelievability that he would like young girls or something like that. Was that what it was? Or some well, she would like the, that he would like those girls. It's not younger. It's just that he would like those girls. And we oh. have a little bit of that audio, and we're going to put it into the podcast. Gotcha. Okay, here it goes. Yeah. I've been out there looking at Mrs. Sims. Okay, you know, I say, hey, okay, you know, nothing's wrong with a guy, you know. <laughs> at least she had something to look at. Yeah. But yeah. my God, that kids, those girls are. Yeah. I mean, Look. really, they are. And they wouldn't have had, they wouldn't have had anything to pimp in front of. I just think it's an odd thing to say about murder victims and their survivors. She she is just very odd, and and we know she's pretty odd all around. No one's ever said that she wasn't. And when she's talking, she's smart enough not to flat out confess. It's more of like a tease. Maybe I did this. Do you think that this is why I did this? Or or maybe I remember that. She's just teetering on the edge of confession. And then she finally asked Larry Campbell, like, what will happen to me if I was involved? And he says, well, I think, I don't have much control over what happens, but, but I think that you would belong in a mental institution. And then she asked him if she could get the reward money and pay to be in a private institution. And he, he, he pretty much laughs at her because it is absurd. Now, she wants to confess and get the reward money and he tells her that no she's not going to get the reward money and that is pretty much the end of the interview they talked to this woman for like six hours wow and then had to say goodbye because she really didn't give them anything that they could use so i wonder if it was a ploy for money all along right maybe she wasn't going in there and trying to incriminate yourself for some triple murder for how much reward money was it? Couldn't have been that much back then. I mean, I think it was like ten thousand dollars. But that's how weird she is that she actually thought that she could confess and that they would give her the reward money. She's out there. She's out there, and Vernon Jr. is pretty out there too. Now, while I was doing all the research for this, I found a site. It's a blog entry. And it was just a treasure trove of comments. Vernon Jr. himself is up there commenting. A lot of people from the area are commenting. And former prosecutor Jeremy Muntz is up there. And they're talking back and forth. And you can hear or read Vernon Jr. tell his story again. 
and his thoughts and who he thinks these three men in the car were that he claimed to see and what was going on. Are we going to link that to the website? Yes, that will okay. be linked on the website. Um, the comments are very interesting whether you think that Vernon was involved or not because, especially because of Jeremy Muntz being up there, being a, a former prosecutor in that area because he actually lost his job in 2016 due to this case because they said he was um, he was fired for using his position to gain information for a book he wanted to write. Now, he says there's no book, but they said that it was, and he says, you know, he was working on the case because he wanted to see it solved. Yeah, that's that's a tough one there. It seems like you'd at least wait till after you won the case get a book going, but I wonder how they knew. They must have got wind of something. Publisher, he was probably talking to a publisher or something. You know, who knows? Well. Obviously lost his job over it. So. He did, and it's been 53 years since this crime happened. Um, this October will be 53 years, and no one has been charged. Um, I'm hopeful that with all these advancements in DNA processing and other forensic, the case will be solved soon. Now, I don't even know if there was any DNA at the scene. There's been very little released upon that. We know there were prints, right. but I don't know. It's never been said whether anyone was sexually assaulted or any of that. How so long, I'm not sure what they have. How long does that DNA last in different forms? I mean, can they get it from bones and... I mean, is it something that, that can last a long time? See, that's another thing. Okay, so this happened in 1966 before we even knew about DNA in, you know, in so this they sense. might not have got a fresh enough. Right, they might that, not have any, right. I'm, so I'm not sure what they have. Yeah. Um, But if anyone listening to this has any information, please contact the Leon County Sheriff's Office at 850 3300. You can see excerpts of Charlie's interview and get so much more information about these murders in the documentary 641 Muriel Court. I recommend this documentary for anyone interested in this case, and I'll put a link to it on the website. It is very good, it's very informative, very well done by a Florida State University College student. Yeah, I did enjoy that, and I'm kind of new to the documentary as far as crime stuff but it was uh it was very well put together and uh very informative thank you guys for listening your support and sharing of our podcast helps us continue to bring it to you you can join your fellow sleuths in our facebook group at a southern sleuth podcast where we discuss cases and other crime related stuff and you can see links, pictures, and leave comments or email us at our website, a southern sleuthpodcast.com. Thank you guys so much for all the support, and we really appreciate it. Thank y'all. Be safe.